I studied this in school and you have to understand that just because you have a PhD in, in computer vision, it doesn't mean you understand the entirety of computer vision. You likely only understand a certain very small facet, but by teaching it, you're getting all of these questions and you honestly may not know the answer to. Now, the difference between someone who's a PhD is that they can likely read a paper or two and get up to speed very quickly. And that's the situation I was in, but I certainly had to be humble with myself and lower my ego and say, at times, I don't know the answer to that question, but I'm gonna add it to my Q a blog post and I'll see if I can cover it in the future. No startup founders were harmed in the making of this podcast. Welcome back to Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 608. I have quite a story for you today about Adrian Rosebrock, who bootstrapped and exited a seven-figure info product called Pi Image Search. And no, it's not about finding pumpkin and apple on, uh, what is it, March 14th? Yeah, March 14th, Pi Day. It is about visual image detection and image classification in Python. And this is really an incredible story of how Adrian graduated with a PhD in computer science with an emphasis on digital image processing and recognition and how he didn't like his day job. And so he started a blog and he just stair-stepped his way up. We talk about stair-stepping. We talk about how Adrian discovered this podcast back in the 2010-2011 timeframe and how that led him down this path of bootstrapped entrepreneurship. And it's a pretty incredible story in the sense that he had built this info product up into the low seven figures with essentially, I think his team was three people. So it was just minting money into his personal bank account. And then in 2020, 2021, he had that epiphany that you know maybe he wasn't learning new things anymore. And, and I asked him that straight up. A lot of folks listening to this podcast would love to have an app or an info product doing seven figures a year and throwing off, I conjecture, 80%, 90% net profit. But it, he wasn't learning anything. And like startup founders, we have to know when to say when and when to move on. So with that, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Adrian. Adrian Rosebrock, thanks for joining me on the show. It's been a long time coming, sir. Yeah, thank you, Rob. It's just an amazing pleasure to be on this be on this podcast. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe we became acquainted. What is it, maybe would it have been 2009 or 10? Yeah, something like that. It's been over 10 years at this point. Yeah, and we can talk a little bit about it as as we get into the interview. But you were one of the very early folks who kind of stumbled upon what I was doing with my blog and then the Micropreneur Academy at the time. But it was basically an online course or a series of online courses about how to be a developer and launch products. And it wasn't even you know these days I focus on SaaS, but back then it was there were info product folks in there, there were mobile app developers, there certainly was SaaS. I think we were starting to call it then. There was downloadable software. There was all you know all kinds of stuff. I'm curious how you found how you found that. Like how did you find me and kind of this bootstrapper this this community? You know, I wish it was a more interesting answer, but it, it's not. I was on the entrepreneur subreddit and somebody posted a top ten list of podcasts and. Sorry for the rest of us was on that and downloaded a few episodes and it just, I don't know, it, it clicked. Like you, you feel like you develop a rapport with someone quickly and then it just really resonates with you. And that's exactly what happened with you and Mike when I was, when I was just getting started. I'm like, wow, I can relate to these guys. Like I really understand where they are. And I didn't feel like you guys were bragging or anything about your accomplishments. Like you get some of these entrepreneur podcasts and people just want to just show off and like really 
highlight themselves and their accomplishments. And it, with you and Mike, it was so humble, it was so relatable. And that, that really resonated with me. And it was just like two guys having a conversation and you were learning from it the entire time. That's cool. Especially, I mean, kind of the info marketer or inf- yeah, the information marketer space in the 90s was these sales letters they would mail out. And then in the 2000s, they kind of moved online and it was always the guru right? It was always the person who was selling was the guru. And I was always kind of annoyed by that because I thought, you know, can't you just be a normal person and be successful and teach? It's cool to hear that resonated with you because that was the point. I, and I'll admit, if I go if I go back and listen to like the first 10 episodes, I'm a little bit guruing, you know, a little more than probably I should have because I didn't, I just didn't know any other model, but we, we quickly became ourselves, right? And I mean, I think, you know, we'll talk later about Info Product Mastery, which is your, your podcast that launched a couple of weeks ago. But is that something that has impacted your approach to teaching? Because we're going to dig in today, Pi Image Search, which is this company built to seven figures in revenue and, you know, had a life-changing exit last year. I have to imagine that, that perhaps your take on teaching, you know, was influenced by whether it startups or rest of us or other folks who you related to. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I have, a, I have a PhD in computer science. I studied computer vision and machine learning in school, and that's writing software that can understand what's in an image, such as face recognition. So I, I studied this in school, and you have to understand that just because you have a PhD in, in computer vision, it doesn't mean you understand the entirety of computer vision. You likely only understand a certain very small facet. But by teaching it, you're getting all of these questions and you honestly may not know the answer to. Now, the difference between someone who's a PhD is that they can likely read a paper or two and get up to speed very quickly. And that's the situation I was in. But I certainly had to be humble with myself and lower my ego and say, at times, I don't know the answer to that question, but I'm going to add it to my queue of blog posts and I'll see if I can cover it in the future. And it became a tremendous learning experience for me because in in school, I learned the theoretical. I learned the mathematics. I was writing papers. I was reading papers. But I wasn't necessarily learning a lot of practical implementation side of stuff. So when I was running the blog, I was able to actually write the code to figure it out and then hand it off to people and be like, this is the code that you can use to solve this specific problem. Here is a line-by-line explanation of what that code is doing, and you can integrate it into your own projects. And that taught me, I think, just as much as it taught the people who were reading the blog, and it made me that much better. But that wouldn't have been possible if I didn't lower my ego to really accept that there are a lot of blind spots that I didn't know. Right, and that's, I I think, a listener who doesn't have a PhD, maybe like, like myself, I, we always joke, I'm usually the least educated person. I went to public school and got a bachelor's, the least educated person in most rooms I'm in. But you, you got a PhD and I think people might say, well, that's it. You're kind of set, right? You like have the doctorate and you're going to go do your thing and make a kajillion dollars. But what, why didn't, like, what didn't match up there? Why did that script not play out in your life? It was weird, you know, I'm always drawn to doing really challenging things, whether that's building a business or getting an education, getting a PhD. And I felt like I was constantly being just pulled in two different directions. So throughout my undergrad years, I was working in small business. I I worked for a a company that was uh, acquired. I was there for five years, started as a junior developer and ended up as a senior developer. And that exit actually paid for my college education, which was an amazing, amazing uh, blessing that that I had while in school. But at the same time, like, I was just drawn to this idea of getting a PhD because to me it was it was almost like playing playing the market. It's almost like a stop loss. Like you know you you put your investment in and it, but you immediately know what that stop loss is so you can exit. That PhD was kind of my stop loss because I knew it was it was security 
that if anything bad happened in my life, I could always go back and teach. I could go back to a public university or a community college and teach and still be able to make a living. So that was my safety net. And it was also extremely challenging. So that kept me on board and, and going for it and fighting for it. But to be honest, by the time I was midway through my PhD program, I, I was well aware that I wasn't suited for academia. I wasn't suited for for research, you know, the double blind peer review paper system is it, it works and it's also extremely broken at the same time. And I I didn't like that I would write content that could help others, but it would sometimes take years to publish and tons and tons of revisions. It didn't sit well with me. And I, I knew that I needed to be in an in industry where we could iterate faster, where we could release products and help others along the way. Yeah, that's also an issue Sherry had with academia, right? She got, most people listening to this know she got a PhD in psychology and she interned at Yale and then was like, this isn't what I thought it was going to be, you know, and wound up doing a postdoc in the Boston VA. And then was like, well, so the research stuff, the publishing is just a grind and it's not as rewarding as I'd hoped. And like you said, it takes way longer than, than I wanted to. And then she started becoming, or she became a professor. And even that then had its own thing. She loved the kids. She hated the, I don't know, there were the meetings and the committees and the politics, you know, unfortunately there's politics. It's a big old institution and eventually comes out and becomes an entrepreneur as well. So I, I think that spirit, you know, lives in a lot of people. And I think only some of us kind of are able or willing to listen to that call. I think the willing to take that risk, I think is is a big thing. And also the ability, sometimes you just, you know, I don't know, you're married, you have four kids, you just can't, right? It, so, I, so I don't want to play it out like if you don't do it, you're too scared or whatever. But I do think that some of us had the luxury. I know that I held myself back psychologically where I was so unwilling to take on any risks. And realistically, the fallback, you know, I like your idea of a stop loss. Like my stop loss was I was a senior developer making low six figures. I could go anywhere and do that. You know, there was the stop losses. I could go get a job, which is what I had that day, right? So why not go out, go out and try it? And so that's what you did, right? You came out of grad school with a PhD. You got a job and you were telling me offline that it was maybe not your favorite uh, day-to-day experience as, as, you know, we often talk about on this podcast. What sucked so bad about your day job? Yeah, I I loved the guys that I was working with. They were so smart. You know, two of them were pretty high up in NSA and we got to work with some pretty amazing data sets. But at the same time, like I I just wasn't feeling happy and I wasn't feeling fulfilled. And that's because there's this deep-seated need in me to not only create something, but sell something, to be able to create something of value that people will trade their hard-earned dollars for. There's just something immensely satisfying to to me as a person by doing that. So no matter how much money I was making with with these guys, which honestly was pretty amazing. Like I graduated from college with my PhD. I had a base salary of like 120,000 a year. And then we had bonuses up to like 80,000 on top of that. Just a ton of money back in like, I don't know, 2000, I guess graduated in like 2011. So as a young kid who's like 23, 24 years old, you just feel like you're rolling rolling in money. And that felt good. But like, I bought a bunch of stuff and I like fell into the consumerism habit of like more, more, more. But at the end of the day, I just wasn't happy at all. I knew I needed to do something on my own. That's where you know, I started exploring developing my own apps and my own products. You know, in college, I had developed a few mobile apps just for fun to try and get them off the ground. But what really held me back was the lack of marketing, marketing skills. And that's really what drove me towards starting PyImage Search. Got it. And, you know, like you said, you stumbled upon startups of the rest of us. And it sounds like the stair-step approach resonated with you. Is that right? Talk us through your thinking there and, and where you started with PyImage Search. With PyImage Search, I wanted to go back to square one. I really needed to ground myself in the basics. And that's 
develop a small little product that you can create ideally in 30 to 60 days. Just get it online and just work your butt off at selling it. Just get that marketing down, learn how to email market, learn how to advertise, learn how to communicate with your customers. Because honestly, that's what I was missing with my two previous ventures back in college. Those were two, you know, either scientifically focused or they were going after markets that like healthcare spaces that someone in their 20s without the proper connections is just not going to be able to do. So I needed to get you know, kind of these, your consumers or your, your prosumers, people who were willing to trade a bit of money to get some knowledge that'll help them professionally. So that was my idea. Just go straight back to basics, learn them really, really well. And then that'll serve you yeah, throughout your lifetime. But it was truly an investment in my entrepreneur spirit and my own journey. Got it. And so you started by starting a blog, right? You started writing and I mean, how did that play out? This is 2011. Oh no, this is like 2014. Right, 2013, 2014? Yeah. And so so you start writing on this topic, which I think is, you know, kind of a nice way to dip your toe in the water of something, right? It's like if I'm gonna write about it, A, do I enjoy writing about it? How hard is it for me to do it? And do I get any traction? Right. Because if you get no if if any of these are a no, then it's like, well, probably shouldn't do this. And you know, you're writing about Python. Oh, it's Py Image Search. I want to explain to people it's PY imagesearch.com, P-Y for Python, right? Because Python is used so much in the image recognition space, right? I got to be honest, I don't know if we've ever talked about it, but my two favorite classes in college were image recognition and like digital photo process, digital image processing maybe. I was undergrad and I was taking grad level courses and the the professor was like, this is going to be really hard. And I was like, I'm sure it is. But I loved it. And I actually considered for a while, I was a double uh, electrical engineering, computer engineering major. And so it was kind of an elective-ish thing. And I considered like focusing on image recognition because it was so fascinating to me. But I never never learned Python. But so you dove into blogging about this and was there... (laughs) It's like, did, did these things go up on Hacker News, on Reddit, or was it just an SEO play at first? Like, how, how did you start seeing early traction and how did you get that signal that this is working? You know, in the beginning, like when you're starting a brand new blog, you're just not going to have that SEO traction. It's just not, not really possible. So you have to rely a little bit on, on social media. You have to join discussions like LinkedIn groups, uh, Reddit threads, Hacker News threads. And that's exactly exactly what I did. So I wrote the first blog post in 2014. And the general idea and the theme was to explain these extremely technical, complicated computer vision, artificial intelligence concepts with code rather than theory. And I would build these small working projects, explain them line by line, and then people could take that code and apply it to their own projects. So I knew there was a practical aspect to that. So Reddit was super important and so was Hacker News because those are two groups that want to see that practical aspect. They want to see the demos. They want to see, hey, does this work for me? What's the outcome? How can I integrate this into my own project? You're In some ways, you're almost sparking their imagination by showing them both the code and the output result. That is crazy. And I would have thought that in 2014, there would have been plenty of books and resources available. I mean, O'Reilly, you mentioned O'Reilly when, you know, when we've talked about this, and that's who I would have gone to in 2014. It's like, I want to learn about, what's it called? It's OpenCV with Python. And you want to explain to people what OpenCV is? Yeah, OpenCV stands for Open Computer Vision. It's an open source library for the Python programming language. Also for, I think there's C, C++ bindings, Java bindings. It's the largest computer vision library available online. Back in you know 2014, most code samples were in C and C++. There was very little in Python, but Python was quickly gaining traction as like the go-to language for not only computer vision, but machine learning, artificial intelligence, data science, 
pretty much all of that nowadays is done in Python, at least in a, in a research and a prototyping capacity. So any books you would find online really utilize C or C++. And there was like three or four books on O'Reilly and Pact. You know, back then there were no Udemy courses on OpenCV. So I was like, man, like I've seen a sm like a few grad students start blogs on how to help other grad students do the more practical experiments of their, of their PhD, like writing the code to process the data sets, get these results back out. And I was thinking to myself like, wow, like maybe this is where I get involved. This is where I can show my expertise and yes, give back to the community, but also learn how to market and sell at the same time. So I'm going to attack this thing using the Python programming language where I know there's a few blogs, there's not necessarily any anything for sale in Python, but I know Python is the future of data science, it's the future of machine learning. Let's go in on this and I can always pivot back to C or C++ if I need to, but I believe Python is the way to go. And it, it turns out that was definitely the, the right decision in the long run. Yeah, I mean, you included it in the company name and the domain name, the Pi, so that would have been a tough pivot later. Do you think you needed a PhD in computer vision in order to do this? Or do you think you could have learned it from the books and from an undergrad education or whatever and still executed on this company? You know, I don't even think you need like a, a computer science degree or a mathematics degree or an advanced uh, degree like physics or, you know, something that you would traditionally think of a person transitioning into these advanced computer science concepts. That's just, that's just not true anymore. Maybe it was 10, 15 years ago. But now, no, not at all. You have so many resources on, on Udemy, on, on YouTube, so many blogs. If you just learn the basics of programming, it's remarkable how fast you can get up to speed in these advanced topics. Yeah, that's been my experience as well. I grew up in the, in the 80s and it was, here's a book. I Speak Basic to My Apple was the first book we had. And you, we, we would literally read through it and type the basic programming into the Apple IIe. And you type that thing from a, there was no copy paste. You know, you'd type it in and you'd have the, the typos. And that was a way that I learned it. And these days it's obviously so much easier. And not, not to say that I walked uphill both ways. It was, it was a really good way for me to learn it as a kid. But I think the, the advancement of these topics, whether Pi Image Search or whether O'Reilly and Udemy, I think it's a, it allows us to build so much more complex things so much uh, more quickly. And so you launch the blog, you're getting some traction on Reddit and Hacker News. So you're learning, are you learning marketing at this point? Like were you starting to collect email addresses or were you just learning copywriting at this point? Like, hey, it's content marketing. You know, what, what was the, the tool belt? How is the tool belt expanding? Yeah, so first put the site online, put a few opt-ins up there. Back then it was uh, using MailChimp and we had like a resource guide PDF. We had a, a weekly newsletter. Those were the two primary ways people were getting on our email list. But the what really, really changed for us is then I, is when I realized like, man, why am I not putting these code samples behind opt-ins? That was the game changer. And you know, I think people listening to this episode, especially developers, would be like, what? Like, why wouldn't you just throw it on, on GitHub? For me, I was creating a like a zip file or a tar file of this code, uploading it to my server. And the only way you could get it is if you if you entered in your email address. And yeah, it, it bothered some people, but literally like we were getting like a three to five increase in our opt-ins overnight just by putting that uh, that code opt-in. That was fantastic. And, and I think that's true regardless of what info product you're, you're doing. Like you could be, you know, teaching people how to play guitar and you have like a guitar tab or some chords that you review for a certain song in a video or a blog post. Put that PDF of that tab behind an opt-in and do it on a per post basis because it's so hyper specific to that post. So that was that was a true game changer. And once we started getting these multiple opt-ins and you know essentially an opt-in for every single post, I mean we 
have 500 plus tutorials now. So we switched over to Drip pretty pretty quickly. That was back in the the early days of Drip, actually before even I think automations were or, mm-hmm. or the rule system were, were remember available. That. Yep. Yeah. So we were we were loving Drip. That helped us out tremendously. And otherwise, like I was working on a product in the background. I was authoring a book. But for me at that point, it was like I'm learning how to write email and send that in, in broadcast and getting confident in that, that when I send an email, I'm not going to get hate mail in response mm-hmm. or people aren't going to mark me as spam. And I think initially you have to build that confidence and it, it does take time. You can't shortcut that unless you already have experience sending out email from some other business that you are involved in. Yeah. Yeah. It's a learning curve. It's that terror of the first time you publish a blog post, is everyone going to tear me down? Right. Are they going to rag on me? And the first time you send an email and the first time you do a sales call, if that's your business, I think these are all scary things. So at this point you have a blog, which isn't making any money. You have an email list, which isn't making any money. I presume you're still working the day job. What was your day like? Cause I, this is the nights and weekends story. I, I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people need to hear that some of us had to grind it out. And I know that you did as a side project. So what did that look like as you were building this up? It was a grind. There is no doubt about that. I want to make that explicitly clear that there is no shortcut. If you want to do it, you have you have to do the work. So, and you have to be brutally honest with yourself of, are you going to do this or not? It is a true commitment. So for me, I was I would wake up at 5 a.m. and from 5 to 8, I would work on PyImage Search work nine to five, literally for this day job, and then about six to 8 p.m. on PyImage Search. That was during the weekdays. Weekends, both Saturday, Sunday, I was working 6 a.m. to 1 p.m. on the business. So I was working a ton. I was really exhausting myself, really, you know, at times pushing burnout, but I was, you know, at that point, I could recognize it and pull back on a little bit. That became harder and harder as, you know, the years went on and the business grew. But in the beginning, it, it was, but it was also exciting. And I think that's the part that has to keep you going. You need that passion in the beginning. If you're not passionate about it, of whatever it is you're doing, whether you're building a SaaS app or an info product business, honestly, you're, you're not going to make it because you're, you're not waking up excited to work on it. For me, I was working for, for freedom. I knew I did not like working at this job. I knew that I needed to own my, my own time. I needed my independence to feel happy and content as a human being, like money aside, like, yes, I wanted to make money. I wanted to be happy with my money, but like I needed to be independent and that's what I was fighting for. And that was my motivation that kept me going through the, through those early days, through that really rough grind. Our sponsor this week is Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub. Microsoft for Startups is on a mission to help all founders innovate and grow no matter their background, location, or progress. To this end, they've recently launched Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub, a platform that provides founders with free resources to help solve startup challenges. Members of the platform get a ton of benefits that can help founders build their startup faster from day one up to $150,000 in Azure credits, free development tools like GitHub, free Microsoft collaboration and productivity software like Teams and Outlook, offers from startup-friendly partners, and more. A strong and diverse network is critical to a startup's success. And so Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub is making this historically inaccessible resource open to all by providing members access to a mentor network as well as technical advisors. Members can book time with mentors to get expert feedback and advice on their product roadmap, business plan, fundraising approach, marketing plan, and more. The program is open to everyone, no matter your startup stage. And unlike other programs, there are no funding requirements. And the sign-up process takes less than five minutes. Learn more about Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub at aka.ms slash startups for the rest of us. That's aka.ms slash startups for the rest of us. 
And relatively quickly, you authored your first ebook, right? It was March 2014, Practical Python and OpenCV. And did you start selling that directly to your list or did you do a Kickstarter first? So the very first book was sold directly to my list. I wrote it in about a 10-day period. I was visiting my uh, girlfriend now, now wife at the time. I was at her parents' house while she was she was at work and literally for eight hours a day sitting at their kitchen table, I would write this, write this book, put on my headphones and just consume coffee and just grind and grind and grind on it. And around five o'clock, I'd like go in the fridge and like get a beer and like start drinking <laughs> my beer and like start working on the parts that didn't require so much creative energy, what I call the more procedural tasks that you gotta, you gotta slog through. So I had this book and I, it's done. And I'm just thinking in my head, like, is anyone going to actually buy this? Like at that point, you know, there was probably 100, 200 people on my email list. So I built my first sales page. I went on, was it in Envato Marketplace? What is there? What is it's Theme Forest? Theme Forest yep. is there. They have their little uh, templates. I picked like an info product page, like opened up Photoshop, created some graphics, and put a sales page up. I just slapped a $19 price tag on it. And I'm like, I have no idea if people are going to buy this. Like you see ebooks on Amazon for three or $4, and you also see these technical courses for $500 plus. Like I, I have no idea what to price this thing at, but I put it on there. And uh, I hyped it a little bit. I teased it a little bit to the email list and my own. Um, it was actually my very, very first sales campaign. I said, I sent out a set of emails saying, I'm about to release a book. Here's the table of contents. This is what it's going to cover. And I'm going to release it on this day. And I did it. And I made, I think, two or three sales that very first day. And honestly, some of my favorite money I've ever made in my entire life. It felt so good to be able to send out an email and have money come in. Yeah. With a list of 100 to 200 people, right? It's really small. That's the validation. I mean, you talked earlier about having passion for what you, you're doing to keep you going. I also think another factor is validation that something's working. Because if you toil for a year on a blog and you build up an email list, but you never sell anything, I guess the email count could be your validation, but I think it's weaker validation than the moment that you make $60 in a day, right? Or, or a couple hundred dollars in a month. Suddenly it's like, well, why couldn't I just add a zero to that if I just keep doing this. If the list gets 10 times bigger, can I make $600 in a day? Holy crap, $600, that could make our car payments or you know whatever however it works, right? And and then you see 600 and you think, "Huh, I'm not too far off from 10 grand a month or whatever that that goal is to to quit the day job." And that's that's exactly what happened is like I had this $19 product, and I thought, "Okay, what's the next step? Do I create a new product?" And I was just thinking about that for a couple of days. And I think it was it was Ryan Delk from Gumroad back then. And he he was talking about tiered pricing and how well it worked and his little his little formula of how to, to create three tiers, which is your base price, then your next price is 2x the base price, and your third tier is 2.2x the middle price. So you create these these different tiers. I'm like, man, how can I create tiers to this book? The first book was called Practical Python and Open CV. I'm like, what what can I do to this? And I thought back to my early grad school days, and I realized one of the hardest parts of getting started with OpenCV was actually installing the library. Back then, it, it was not an easy command. You just open up a terminal and type in a command, and it's done. I mean, it, it took days to track down compile errors and, and install dependencies. So I said, hmm, what if I created like a virtual machine that people could just, that has OpenCV pre-installed, and they just download it to their system and import it and runs. It's like, man, that is a good thing. That could be a middle tier because now I have the, this original book. I have the book plus the virtual machine. 
And then for the third tier, I did some research and found you know, CreateSpace, which was an Amazon company that doesn't technically exist anymore, uh, but they could print on-demand books. And I knew like, hey, people love physical print editions, so maybe that could be the, the final tier. So I ended up creating this $47 tier at the base, $94 tier, and then $197 tier that included the physical printed editions. Put that online, and as you said, like, you're thinking in your head, how can I add a zero to what I'm what I'm charging, how much money I'm making? That was a game changer immediately and made more sales and proved that we were going in the right direction. And we tend to underprice our work, right? It's like, well, I'm giving these blog posts away for free, and this book is a collection of these blog posts. $19, that feels and most books, you know, you go to Amazon, like you said, three dollars for an ebook, twenty-five dollars for a print book. So shouldn't we be charging in that in that realm? And it's cool to hear that. Because you're mentioning Ryan Delk's talk, which was, it's called Lifting the Veil, the Data Behind Successful Product Launches. He gave it at MicroConf in 2014. And so folks can go to YouTube and we'll try to link it up in the show notes as well. But hearing an outside perspective, I think, you know, similarly maybe to you hearing Mike and I on Startups the Rest of Us, it, it makes you think, oh, this is possible. Like I can justify this to myself because someone else is making it work. So this, you know, me being an entrepreneur is, is possible. And just being a solo entrepreneur sitting at a kitchen table as a bootstrapper is possible. And then you hear from another person, Ryan Delk, who says at the time he was head of growth for Gumroad, right? So he had all this data of how info products were being sold. And when he says the the one, two, two point two or whatever, whatever the formula winds up being, it gives you I think it, it rattles your frame. Each of us have these mental cages of like, well, certainly I couldn't charge more than twenty or thirty dollars for a book. And suddenly it's like, no, I'm gonna charge two hundred and I'm gonna include a virtual machine and it's print on demand, but I mean really the print on demand, the book's five bucks to print, probably three dollars. You know, it's not actually that much more expensive, but it's having these, sometimes I call them virtual mentors who don't even know me. <laughs> and other times it's just influences of seeing a talk or hearing a podcast that like clicks something in me that changes the trajectory of my business, right? Or of my career. And it sounds like you've had a few of those along the way. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that practical Python and OpenSea was what's the first one. And then the second one happened towards the end of 2014. Basically my my original job, my nine to five job, it was I was working at a startup, but our contract with with the state of Maryland to overhaul this old mainframe system that was costing taxpayers, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars per month. Well, there was an election, the governor switched, and the next day we got a call that said, hey, you're out of a job, the governor, new governor doesn't want to continue this project. So I, I was at an interesting position because at that point, Pyramid Church had been around for seven, eight months probably making six grand a month from Practical Python and OpenCV, which was honestly amazing to see it grow that quickly. But it wasn't replacing my full-time income that I had with my nine-to-five job. And it was doubly complicated because I had just moved uh, from Maryland to Connecticut, moved in with my longtime girlfriend, again, who became my wife. And, it, and I, I wanted to take the risk to continue Pymage Search. It felt like the right move to make. But I also felt like it could really damage the relationship if it didn't go well. It could hurt her trust in me to be a good boyfriend, to be eventually be a good husband, to be a good provider. That was one of the most scary decisions that I had to make. But I said, you know what? I'm young. I'm 24, 25 years old. Let's just do this. So I decided to create this Kickstarter campaign. It was the first crowdfunding campaign that I ever created. And I called it the Pyramid Search Gurus course, which was honestly a horrific name for, for a course. But, you know, I, I was still learning back then. So I planned it all out. I planned out the launch sequence, how I was going to spread it, how I was going get to uh, get the word out, sent out a, a bunch of emails to my list to get people hyped and excited about it. And I purposely set my funding level low. I mean, it, it was probably only three or $4,000. And 
the idea there was that you want to, when you run a crowdfunding campaign, you want to get that thing funded within minutes of getting it online from your original list, from your audience, whether that's social media or your email list, get that funded because that is social proof. And anyone else who stumbles along that page is remotely, who is remotely interested, they're going to see this project that's funded by, you know, 2000%. Now you want to talk about social proof. That's exactly what that was. So put that Kickstarter campaign online. And within the first day, it had raised $6,000, well exceeded the initial goal. And I went on to raise $34,000 by the time the 30-day period ended. So that was absolutely incredible because I, I felt like I had really reached some validation of, yes, this is where you need to be going. You need to focus on this business because it has legs and it could really grow. $34,000 for what essentially has zero cogs, right? Or, or maybe some printing of some books. Because a lot of Kickstarters, you hear people say, don't do Kickstarter to make money, just do it to build an audience. Because if you do, a, you do a 3D printer and the cost to design and build it and ship it and manufacture it and all that, almost choose, even if you raise, literally, I had a friend who did like a half a million dollar Kickstarter for a piece of hardware. And he's like, yeah, we, we may, in the end, we made almost no money. You know, we made less than minimum wage, but it built an audience, it built a brand. And now they had a bunch of it. They did overproduce so that they had these pieces to move, you know, versus pie image search gurus or what is it? It was pie. Yeah. Pie image search gurus. The cost of goods sold are almost zero, right? It was your time. Yeah, it was it was my time to create it. And that was just an online course behind like a WordPress login. You know, yeah. there was there wasn't even any print cost no print. Yeah. associated with it. But the feeling of raising thirty four thousand dollars for something that just flat out doesn't exist yet, that feels good because you know people are putting trust in you and that you've built an audience that actually you know you're resonating with them. Right. And that feeling again, that's that motivation that gets you out of bed that allows you to keep grinding on the business. Right. It reignites, you know, you talked about starting with this passion to do it. And then I talked about having this reinforcement that it's working. And I think the reinforcement comes back and it can reignite that passion because otherwise you burn out. Right, you go six months with no reinforcement. It's like, well, is this even going to work? Whether it's you in your own head, whether it's your spouse or future spouse, significant other, you know, as you were experiencing, I think we need that along the way. And so that was 2014, and you made thirty-eight thousand dollars that year. 2015, you made almost a quarter million dollars, and in 2016, still just you solo. Which Adrian, if I had known this, I would have been busting your chops so hard to hire somebody. But you made six hundred thousand dollars in twenty sixteen, and you still were working on this thing solo. Why did you not hire someone to email support? Just email support. This is what I tell founders: just hire that way earlier than you think you need. So, dude, you're doing more than half a million dollars, and you're just cranking away answering emails as people had questions. You know, honestly, it, it really comes down to ignorance. It was the first business that I had ran at that scale. And I was truly afraid to hire someone initially because I thought by me being in the inbox and responding to people, they felt like they were getting access to the owner, access to the expert, and that would increase sales just by virtue of having my name in the signature. That was turned out to be a very poor assumption on my part. It was totally incorrect, but that, back then that's, that's how I felt. And I was doing way too much by, by myself. I was typesetting blog posts in WordPress. I was creating all the content. I was writing all the email campaigns, doing all the email support. Like if someone had an issue accessing their downloads, I was the one who had to go in and, and create that link and send it to them. I mean, I those early years, I ran completely wrong simply because I was ignorant, because I had never, ever, ever been in that situation before. And honestly, I wish I had someone who just like would hit me over the head and be like, just get on Upwork and hire someone. And 
try them for a week. And if it doesn't work out, revert to what you were doing, but it's probably going to work out and you're going to feel a lot better. And I, I wish I had someone like that. So I'm saying now, if you're making over $600,000 a year in your business and you're the only one working and doing everything, probably time to hire. And you should have hired a long time ago. By the time you hit 20 grand a month, and if you're as long as you're not straight stagnant, you know, you're growing at all, like there are some low hanging fruit and email support is usually the one. And I know exactly what you're saying, because I used to do all of my own, you know, people would have trouble accessing my book when I was selling it as packages. And it's like, well, they hear from Rob Walling. This is great, right? But it's like, yeah, maybe a little bit. It's like, oh, cool. Rob Walling responded, except for I'm chewing through time. It's not worth, it's not worth the time and the kind of burn, potential for burnout for me to be doing these these day-to-day tasks. And so in 2017, over the next three years, you know, you call this kind of your small business years or your mid-growth phase, you started hiring more, you grew the revenue to seven figures and your email list into the hundreds of thousands, which was just more of the same, right? It was more blocking and tackling. And it was, you finally started delegating some of your content, which I remember when you did that because I was sitting watching, you know, Relentless Execution. I was watching you do this for years and years and just grinding. And I'm like, this guy puts out so much written content. It's crazy. And the first time you told me that you had hired someone to write content for you, I was was thinking to myself, I wonder how he's doing with that, right? Because it's every word that had been written, whether it was an email, whether it was a support, email, whether it was copy, sales copy, whether it was the actual, the blog content or whether it was books, every word had been written by you for years and years. And so what was that transition like for you to hire someone and have suddenly have their voice, their words coming out of kind of of your mouth, in essence, of your company's mouth? It was, it was scary as hell. And, you know, I think founders talk all the time about how scary it is adjusting their prices, you know, increasing prices, going up market. They don't want to alienate current customers. They don't want to kill off their, their growth. I mean, that's how I was feeling, but orders of magnitude higher. Because as you said, every word, every piece of content was created by me. But I, I knew at that point, I was so stressed. I was so anxious. I was working way too hard that it was, it was time to start handing over the reins. So I I hired Dave. He was a customer I had developed a really good relationship with, and he helped me with with content creation. And originally, he was effectively a ghostwriter for me on the blog post. I would write the intro to the post, the conclusion. I would fill in any challenging technical content. Maybe it's a really tricky piece of code that needs me to explain it, or there was some theoretical component that I had to, had to describe. And he would go in and fill in the rest. And he did a fantastic job. And I remember when we started publishing posts with him ghostwriting, no one knew at all. And I paid really, really close attention to the emails, to the blog post comments. No one knew at all. And that's when I started to release the reins a little bit. And we wrote a a book, Raspberry Pi for Computer Vision. He effectively wrote all of that book and he rightly got got credit for it. He was listed as as the the first author on it. He was the first like really important hire to the business outside of our, our email support person. And he went on to help with project management, with email support, with troubleshooting. He was really a jack of all trades and really helped during those mid-growth years. And the the mid-growth turned into 2020 and 2021, where you're still doing seven figures. You have this amazing business with what, three, four employees? Yeah, there's about I mean, five employees, about 20. Five and so incredibly profitable, right? Throwing off loads of cash. And you decided to sell it. What was that? What was that decision like? As someone who has gone through, <laughs> gone through this decision before, someone on the outside might say, "Like you worked for all these years and you built up this thing that you had been building for well, at this point six, seven years, and it's throwing off 
I'm just going to say, you don't have to deny or confirm, but it's like it's throwing off, you know, a million dollars a year or more into your personal bank account. Why would you consider selling that? Yeah. And it, it's also, I'll also point out that each year I ran the, the business, we increased revenue every single year. So it's when you're looking at a, a chart of growth, you're not thinking about running it over the top yet because you, you haven't had a decline year. But you know, 2020 came around and of course we we had COVID and we couldn't go anywhere. But my my wife found this little cabin out in Western Pennsylvania. So we, we went out there and I spent a tremendous amount of time journaling, just really considering what I wanted over the next next few years. And I kept talking about selling the business. And the reason I did that was because while I enjoyed running the business, I wasn't creating anything new. I had fired myself from a lot of duties in the business at that point. And at that point, I was really just refining my craft. I wasn't creating something new and novel. And believe it or not, writing email campaigns and making you know seven figures off of those campaigns, it actually does get boring after a while. If you have a growth mindset, you eventually get almost numb to it, which is is sad, but I think it's also affirmative of the fact that you need to keep growing, you need to keep doing what you're doing and doubling down on what interests you. And sometimes what interests you is something totally different than what you've been doing for 70 years of your life. So early 2021 came around and I realized I was serious about, about selling. It was time to take my chips off the table. I didn't want to worry about running over the top. And I uh, talked to you and talked to Sherry about different brokers, came across Quiet Light. And just want to give a huge shout out to Walker Diebel, just amazing, amazing broker, really helped tremendously with that sale of the business. You know, at, at that point, the rest rest is history. Like we had three very serious offers within five days of listing it. And, you know, seven months later, the business was sold. First buyer didn't work out, but the second one worked out fantastic. And they're taking tremendous care of the business. I'm, I'm so happy for them and so proud of what they're doing. Yeah, that's good to feel that way. Seven months to sell? That makes my hair stand up on the back of my neck just saying it out loud. How was that mentally for you to make the decision? Because what I found is <laughs> a lot of entrepreneurs, once we decide something, we want that to happen now, right? It's like there, there's a reason that we don't work in academia anymore because when we decide to publish a paper, 18 months later, it's published and that's too long for us. So when I decide I want to sell a business, I want it to close tomorrow. And so when I hear 210 days, <laughs> that's freaking painful. So what, what was that like for you as someone who I would describe as someone who gets stuff done really quickly because they can and you execute on things, but this timeline was out of your control? Oh, that was, it was brutal. I mean, my, when my type A personality kicked into high gear and I decided to sell, I mean, I got everything to quiet like within a matter of days and literally the next week, everything was listed. Sounds and like I was, you. Yeah. I made it my priority. I hopped on calls when Walker told me to hop on calls. I got, you know, potential buyers information when they wanted it, a super quick turnaround. And I was, I was really excited about the first buyer and just, you know, we got three or four months in and realized there's just a lot of red flags and the deal fell apart. It was challenging for me at that point because I kept the business, the sale of the business pretty close to just myself, my wife, and my dad. I, I talked to them about it, talked to them about the stress of it. And after the first deal fell through, I shut down completely. I was it's like, I told my wife, I don't ask me questions about it. If I volunteer information, like feel free to engage, but don't talk to me about it. Just, I was losing sleep. I was super stressed out and anxious. And honestly, it was just playing out worst case scenarios in my head. And honestly, if you're a business owner, it's just going to happen. You're going to think about the worst case scenarios. It's going to bother you. It's going to be 
upsetting. One of the, the best things that I did, and this is something that I would never do under you know normal working conditions or, or something like that or for, for productivity reasons, but I just found like a mindless game to play on my iPhone for like an hour or two a day while you know the business was running and I was done getting information to the broker or to potential buyers. Like I played like this you know, stupid little baseball game on my iPhone for a couple hours just to give myself a break, to let the brain shut down and occupy my time. That honestly probably just saved me from having like a huge breakdown during the sale of the business. Yeah, I think that's underrated. I think I know that myself and a lot of entrepreneurs get, I get a little too hung up on constant self-improvement, on the need to constantly be, whether it's physically or whether it's listening to, I'm listening to the newest audiobook of the theory of this future thing that's nonfiction for sure. And I'm listening to these podcasts about how to improve my business. And I, I do that and I get it. But there are times where your life is so tumultuous, whether it's your personal or your professional life, in this case, it was professional, where I think you have to give yourself space and you have to give your mind some space to chill out. And doing that with a stupid, with a video game or with like, I do it with tabletop, Dungeons and Dragons, I do it with po- you know, podcasts about the advent of role-playing, whatever. It's stupid shit that no one else will get and no one else will care about, but I can put it on and I can feel like for this 30 minutes, I'm not thinking about business. And I don't know how else to numb myself out to that other than like drinking alcohol, which is, let's just say, is not going <laughs> to, one day is fine, but you know, it, that can lead down a, a pretty, pretty tough path. So you eventually closed and you, you sold this business after seven months. It was late 2021. I mean, what was that feeling like? I think a lot of founders find it bittersweet. The sweet part is, holy crap, I have millions, you know, millions of more dollars in my bank account today. And the bitter part is I've been working on something for a long time and I have to let it go. And there's varying degrees of those two things, I think, in, in different founders. Like, what was your perspective on it a day later, maybe a week later, a month later? Like, how did that, how did that evolve? You know, to be honest, and this is the, the brutal honest truth, is for me, it was, it was anticlimactic. You know, I, I sold the business, the money got transferred in my account. I had a really quick handoff period. It was only three months that was required to be around to help transition the business. And the day the business sold that the money landed in my account, my wife and I went out to dinner and to a nice restaurant. And I, I remember feeling so tired and so exhausted. Like I, I enjoyed the food, I had a few drinks and there was this really nice cigar lounge down the street that we, we like going to. And you know, obviously you just sold the business. It's a perfect time to go have like a nice scotch and, and smoke a cigar. But I, I looked at her and it's, it's only eight o'clock in the evening. And I say, genuinely, I'm so tired. Like I can't keep my eyes open. I just wanna go back to the house lay on the couch and watch some stupid reality TV show and just go to sleep. That's all I want right now. And to me, it was it was a confirmation of how I had been feeling over the past few months, that this was one of the hardest things that I had, I had been doing. And then at the same time, I had been pushing myself so hard physically. I'm a, a super hard, hardcore fitness nut. I love pushing myself in the gym just as much as I love pushing myself in business. In 20, uh, 2020 and 2021, I was working out like 11 times per week. And wow. part of that was due to my fitness goals, but also because that was my stress outlet for the really severe hard stuff during during the acquisition, just going into the gym, throw around some weights. But the problem was like by the time that business sold and I got that relief of knowing that, okay, this is done, then everything that I had suppressed just started coming out. And like my, I started to shut down a little bit. Like uh, I had trouble 
recovering from my from my workouts. I felt tired. I felt bloated. Like I I have never had any problems with gluten in my life, but literally developed a gluten intolerance for about three or four months hmm. due to the stress of selling that business. Like it was one of the hardest hardest points in my life. So if you if you sell your business, be realistic. Understand it's going to be stressful, and that you may not get that huge like celebration at the end of it when that money hits hits your account. For me, it took me six months later to get to that point. My my wife and I went to Italy a few weeks ago, and while we're there, it finally hit me, and I could finally feel all of it. I could look at the accomplishment of selling the business, of building that business, of all that I put into it, and I could separate it from all the, the grind and the pain and the long hours put into it, and I could see them both together and be proud of that. That takes a while to get to, especially if you have a hard acquisition process. Yeah, I think that's well said, man. I think that's a good note, a good note to leave it on. If folks want to hear, I mean, this is basically a summary, a compression of your story because there's obviously a lot more to it. If folks want to hear more about your story and also hear more about your theory of, of Invo products and kind of building that freedom the way you did, you launched a podcast a couple of weeks ago. It's called Info Product Mastery, obviously available in all the podcatchers people could find and infoproductmastery.com if folks want to get on your email list and you know get some exclusive updates that you're not going to release publicly and all that stuff. So thanks yeah, so much. Absolutely. The, the goal of the podcast is I just want to help developers and educators and entrepreneurs launch and grow their online education businesses. Yeah, as developers, we have such a niche specific knowledge that if you've been in the field for five years or more, you probably have enough expertise to write a book, to create a course, to start a blog. So I want to distill all the lessons that I've that I've learned from Pine Research and, and help help you educate others, build a following, create your first ebook or course, learn how to market, sell it, and build a successful business. So we we dropped three episodes already. We're doing weekly episodes. And if you're interested, you know, go to infoproductmastery.com and enter your email address and you'll be notified when new episodes go live. And Circling back to the early part of this conversation, I talked about how in the early days, this very podcast, Startups for the Rest of Us, didn't focus on SaaS, right? We had SaaS, we had info products, we had mobile apps, a bunch of other stuff. And over the years, just SaaS became my thing and we kind of you know narrowed to it. But we have gotten emails over the years. A lot of, like Andrew Connell has emailed several times and said, where's the info product equivalent of Startups for the Rest of Us? And, and I feel like I've always said, I don't know. Because so much of the info product and course creation advice comes from just sources that I would not recommend, basically. And so, you know, my hope and my expectation is that info product mastery will be that. So folks, as you said, if they're developers, educators, and entrepreneurs and are thinking about launching their own course, you should check it out. Thanks so much, man. Thanks for coming Thanks, on the Rob. show. It was truly a pleasure and an honor to be on this podcast. You've you and Mike have helped so much over the years as well as sharing. It's um just Truly happy to be here. It's great to have you, man. Relentless execution is how I would describe Adrian, and I hope you enjoyed that story. And I hope today brings you a little bit of motivation, maybe some ideas of how to improve or grow your own business, because that's the purpose of this podcast. And whether you've been listening for six or 600 episodes, it's a pleasure to have you here every week. I appreciate you coming back. Signing off from episode 608. I'll be back in your ears again next Tuesday morning. Tuesday morning.